Good morning, church. So apparently the TV doesn't want to work today. Normally I'd be the guy to fix that, but well, maybe not. So my name is Frank Lucas. I am the family ministry pastor here at Community Covenant Church. I actually just stepped into that role from Creative Arts just a couple of weeks ago. And this morning we're actually launching a new check-in system downstairs. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you just needed to stop and take a breath. Anyone? kind of need one of those right now. So if you would oblige with me, we're just going to take a moment and, uh, and just be still and, and go to our Lord in prayer. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we are so blessed and so privileged to be able to come and to gather here in this place as your church. Lord, we just ask that you, you bless our time together, that as we dive into your, your word, that you reveal yourself to us this morning, that we may grow to be closer to you, that we may grow to not just know about you, but rather know you. Lord, it's our hope and prayer that in the remainder of our time that we have here together, that you touch our lives, that you touch our hearts, that we may go from not only being hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we can go out so that we can make your light shine. We pray these things in your precious son's name, who makes all things possible. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thanks, I needed that. All right. This past fall, my daughter Emma came up to me. Emma is my oldest of four children. I have three girls, eight, six, and almost four, and a young boy who's two years old. And Emma came up to uh, my wife, Katie, and I, and she said, I want to play basketball. And I looked at her, and I smiled, um, because I'm a loving dad, but Emma, out of my four children, is certainly not the one that's going to make it into the WNBA. And and she, um, it's not because I don't love her, I love her dearly, um, but she could possibly be the most uncoordinated eight-year-old that you've ever met in your entire life. And um, I pray that she's not watching this downstairs at the Connection Center. And... uh, it's not being mean, it's just factual. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Um, her sister, on the other hand, is extremely competitive, extremely coordinated. No matter what she does, she just does it well, and it just creates this competition. And so Emma really wanted to just engage in basketball. And so Kate and I, we looked at it, and we said, okay, you're not involved in a lot of extracurriculars outside of church and outside of school. So we said, you, you've never done dance, or we haven't had to pay for all the recitals and those sorts of things. So, okay, let's, let's give it a shot. So I went online to the website for the local YMCA down in Barrington, and I printed up the application, and I began filling it out line by line. Man, they need a lot of information. And I got to the bottom, and there were two things that stood out to me. First of all was the cost. Dear Lord, why? Why so much for a bunch of kids to run around in a gymnasium once a week? Second of all was we needed a birth certificate. I have four children. Our, our house is in disarray all the time because of those four children. I hope Kate's not listening. I have no idea where to even begin to look for such a document. So our house has moved a couple of times. We just changed bedrooms and, and things are moving. And so I began frantically going through the house and then realized I need to find this if my kid wants to play basketball. Why she needs it to play basketball is a whole other question. I'm not sure. 
She's, at the time, seven years old. Why? What's the point? And aside from the fact that I had no idea where it was, it got me thinking a little bit about the idea of a birth certificate. Certificates. Typically something that marks what? An achievement, maybe? Uh, you, you came in first place in something, or if you're in t-ball in Little League nowadays or soccer, you get one for participating. It, it marks an achievement of some sort. A lot of times we frame them, we put them on the wall. I have a few at our home, in my office even. There, there's something that we're proud of. In a birth certificate, though, has anyone ever framed a birth certificate? I guess it's an achievement. I mean, if you think about it, it could be a traumatic experience for both baby and mom, for dad maybe. I, I know one time I was in the room with Kate, and at the end I was like, whew. The nurse and my wife looked at me and said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are, you can't do that. But it's, it's some sort of an achievement, I guess, if you will. But a birth certificate is needed for a lot of things. A passport. When you're looking to get married, there's lots of applications, some jobs even requirement. If, if you want to play basketball at the Y, for example, you need to have a birth certificate. But one thing that is not needed for a birth certificate, one thing, to prove that you were born. If you think about it, the very thing that a birth certificate is designed to do is what? To prove your birth. Do you all believe that I'm standing here in front of you right now? If I did not have a birth certificate, would that change the fact that I'm actually here physically in front of you? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It, the mere fact that I'm here is actually proof enough. Now, there are a few minor details that you find on a birth certificate that are extremely helpful. Okay, the date of birth. All right? I, I think sometimes t-ball teams, they try, that's probably why they actually need it in sports, is so that you don't try to get all these ringers on a t-ball team. All right? But your date of birth is important. Where you were born can sometimes be important. Your parents, that sort of information, that's all important. But at the end of the day, it's simply a piece of paper. Now, for those of you that are concerned about Emma's basketball career, no worries. I eventually found it. We signed her up, and she went on to have an amazing season. I think she took one shot on the entire year. It wasn't even close. She's going to watch this someday and hate me. <laughs> but for many of us, for many of us sitting in this room, for many of us that are gathered here today, whether watching live or online, at some point along the way, we made a decision to accept Jesus Christ. We made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And sometimes you hear us talk about that moment when it happened. We talk about that moment as if it's more important than what happened after the fact. More than what's taking place in our lives in this very moment. That's like being more concerned with your birth than with your life. Think about that for a second. If, if someone came up to me and asked me how I was doing, and I responded, well, I was born on March 22nd, 1984, Providence, Rhode Island, to Francis A. Lucas and Karen Riley, uh, Karen Riley Lucas, That'd be ridiculous. Yet I find when we have conversations with one another, particularly with folks that are also followers of Christ, we tend to refer back to the moment of salvation. Then we talk, we talk about that more than we talk about what we're doing with our lives now and how Christ is an active part of them now. 
Your birth certificate is proof of the fact that you were born. It doesn't prove that you're alive. In the same way that your date or your commitment date, if you think of it, uh, with salvation, simply proves the fact that you, you made that commitment at one point in time. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're spiritually alive or dead. My father's been dead for 20 years ago. You know what he has? A birth certificate. It doesn't mean anything. It just proves that he was born. In the same way, our commitment to follow Jesus Christ doesn't prove that a transformation actually took place. It's how we live our lives. So why is it then that when we come to our relationship with God, we tend to be more concerned with that commitment date, if you will? We're focused more on that than we are on how we're living. Jesus came for us. Not so that we could get a certificate. We provide, we provide a certificate, actually, when you get baptized. But that's not why he came. He came and laid down his life for us so that we would follow him. So that we'd follow his teachings. That we would love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That we would love others as ourselves, that we would love others in the same way that he loved us. And that when we do, when we do these things, that is when we begin to experience life to the fullest. That's when we begin to experience life as God intended. Now, God's love for us, Christ's love for us is unconditional. There are no strings attached. It's based solely on God's grace. There's a passage from a book that I, I love. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace uh, by Philip Yancey, and it reads this in one portion of the book. I'm going to share it with you. It says, During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from all around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities of incarnation. While other, relig other religions had versions of God's appearing in human form, what about resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. What is the rumpus all about? He asked. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. I would have loved to be in there this moment. Lewis looked at them and he responded, that's easy. They've been working on this for days. That's easy, he says. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees all had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to, coming to us free of charge with no strings attached seems to go against every instinct of basic humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law, each of these and every other religion offer a way to earn approval. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Think about that for a moment. We're gathered here. All of us are gathered here. Millions of people around the world on Sunday mornings come together and throughout the week come together not to do something to gain favor from God, 
but rather to acknowledge something that's already been done for us. No other religion can boast of that. No other religion can stand on that. Yet here we are. Here we are. And we have such a hard time sometimes accepting this. It's a shocking thought when you really think about grace, that we can't earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. Grace, this idea of grace, this idea of a free gift, transcends our ability to to understand it. We want to earn God's favor. That's how we think. Some years ago, back when I first started with the youth group, when I started volunteering with the teens, we decided to have a car wash. So we looked for a place to do it. We ended up doing it down at Baker's Corner. Uh, I think there's a mortgage place over there now. Uh, The lot was empty, and we asked if we could use it. So we made up our signs, and we got our buckets and our soap and hoses, and, and it was great. It was an awesome time. The sign said, free car wash. We had people hand, holding them up on the corner, and one by one, cars started to come in. They would come in, and we'd throw a bucket of soap all over the car. It was awesome. It was fun. The kids were getting washed probably more than the cars were. But here's the thing. There was actually a few individuals, actually more than a few, there was a lot of individuals who would pull up, and the kids already started washing the car, and the individual would roll the window down, and they'd say, how much? And we say, it's free. What do you mean it's free? I said, it doesn't cost anything. Well, can I make a donation? No, you can't. Well, can I give you a tip? Nope. It's just a free gift. Do you know that there was actually a handful of individuals that rolled their window up and drove away? Soap on the, like kids literally like flying out of the way because these people were so mad that they couldn't actually do something to earn the gift that we were trying to give them. Think about that for a second. Think if you were going to be in that situation for a moment. How would you respond? Would you actually be able to receive that free gift? This is a true story. This really happened. More often than not, people got so upset about this. But the people that didn't, it created an opportunity to have a conversation with them about what a free gift really looks like. It was an amazing, amazing moment, an amazing experiment. See, when it comes to our faith, rather than simply accepting the gift of grace, many try to find alternative ways to seek God's favor and entrance into his kingdom, of which there is none. It is by grace and grace alone. Warren Buffett, one of the most famous uh, men of all time, uh, I don't say famous of all time, one of the wealthiest men of all time, I should say, at one point in time gave half of his wealth to charity. He picked out five charities. This is true. He picked out five charities and donated half of his wealth. And do you know what he said when he did so? This is what he said. There's got to be more than one way to get to heaven. Boy, was he wrong. We as a culture want to control our destiny. We as a culture want to be in the driver's seat. We as a culture want to be creator. We do not like the idea of simply being creation. But the scriptures, the Bible, this book challenges us to think in new ways. One of the first passages of scripture that I ever memorized, it was back in the fourth grade, it was Ephesians 2, chapter 8, verses 9. It reads this. I memorized a different translation, so I'm going to read it. But it says, For by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace, and it is by grace alone. Do not misunderstand. If you go on to read verse 10, it talks about how we were created to do good works. 
but those works have nothing to do with whether or not we gain entry into God's kingdom or that we get to be a participant in the restoration of all things. It is by grace and by grace alone. So this morning, if you would turn your Bibles, we're going to be diving into John chapter 3. I think that's on page 883. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture uh, about a man by the name of Nicodemus. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there are plenty all around. They're all in your seats. And uh, consider that our free gift to you. To get grace, free gift. Come on. As you're turning there, allow me to tell you a little bit about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee known for his pious lifestyle. Essentially, all Pharisees were. Over the years, these religious leaders had developed 613 laws and commandments that they needed to obey. And they believed that if they did so, they would gain favor with God. Of those 613 laws, 365 of them were negative. 248 were somewhat positive. By the time Jesus enters the scene, by the time that Jesus enters the picture, these laws have created a heartless, arrogant, pious form of religion. Their view of God was based more on them than it was on him. Think about that for a second. Their view of God, their, view, uh, their idea of religion was based more on themselves and what they did or chose not to do than it was on God himself. It was all messed up. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, actually happens to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is essentially the, it was the Jewish court system. Think of modern day for us like the Supreme Court. There are 70 members among this council it has a significant political power. Its members are an elite class. They're all extremely wealthy. And if there's one thing that we know to be true about the Pharisees, and particularly the Sanhedrin, it's that they did not like Jesus. I'd be so bold as to say that they actually hated him. Jesus' teachings were radical. They were revolutionary. And they brought into question absolutely everything that they believed. Everything that they believed. So this is where we pick up this morning in John chapter 3. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. He came in the dark. He came at night to see Jesus. Think about this for just a moment. I see two possible reasons that I could think of as to why he would come at night. The first of which is this. Jesus was very busy. He often traveled. He was often surrounded by large groups of people. Perhaps Nicodemus just wanted to have some one-on-one -on -one time with him. Maybe visiting him with at night would provide a little bit of privacy and some time to have a heart-to-heart, -heart, a man-to-man -man conversation. The, section, the second option is this. Nicodemus is a teacher of the religious law. He's highly regarded. He is looked at as an authority over the uh, religious law. He is most likely terrified of what people would think if they saw him and Jesus together. For him to actually sit down and have a conversation with Jesus would bring legitimacy to him, which the Sanhedrin absolutely did not want. I'm not sure what the ramifications of such a conversation would be, but I imagine that would have been more than a little bit of a slap on the wrist. Now, my assumption 
knowing that assumptions aren't always the best to make, is that it's the latter of the two. I imagine that Nicodemus was terrified to be seen sitting having a conversation with Jesus. Now, I love how Nicodemus starts his conversation with Jesus. It's with flattery. Rabbi, he says. He's essentially saying, let's have a conversation, man to man, teacher to teacher, rabbi to rabbi. He's acknowledging that Jesus is a teacher and that God was with him despite the fact that he was not a recognized teacher in the religious schools. Jesus, in his eyes, had demonstrated that there was something special about himself. But one thing that we know in this moment, one thing that we know to be true about Nicodemus is that he was, in fact, in darkness, both physically, because he went to see Jesus at night, but spiritually as well. If you go back just a few verses in John, chapter 1, it says this, the word... The Word was God and the Word was with God. That's the Word. The Word is God. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So here, John gives us a bit of a setup for what's about to happen. Despite Nicodemus coming in the dark of night, both physically and spiritually, we know that his darkness is going to be no match for the light that is Jesus Christ. So if we go back to verse, uh, chapter 3, the text continues in verse 3. It says this, Jesus replied to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see. Forget about entrance. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Jesus knows exactly why Nicodemus came to see him. He's not fooled by this. He, Nicodemus is looking for affirmation. He's looking for affirmation of his spirituality in his pursuit of God's favor on him. But instead of gauging with the small talk, instead of doing that, Jesus cuts right to the point. He challenges him by saying that no one can see the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, unless they are born again. This single sentence, this one line, dismisses everything that Nicodemus, the other Pharisees, and Sanhedrin hold on to dearly. They believed that through laws and through their commandments, they could and they would, in fact, gain favor with God. One sentence, Jesus dismisses everything that Nicodemus cares about. Absolutely everything. It not only uproots their entire belief system, it uproots their entire way of life. Surely this is not how Nicodemus was hoping this conversation was going to go. I imagine going into the conversation, Nicodemus believed that God's kingdom would one day rule the world. And you know what? He's right. That is true. God's kingdom will rule the world. However, there's a caveat amongst that. It's that he thought the only way to be a part of that was to be born a Jew and to obey the laws and commandments that they had. Uh, that they had. Do you remember the birth certificate we started talking about a little while ago? Nicodemus thought that he was all set because of what his birth certificate said. It's not based on good works. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your nationality. If you look back to John 1, chapter four, uh, verse 4 for a moment, it says, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Everyone. Not just the Jewish people. Not just God's elect, if you will. Everyone. So how, how then does Nicodemus respond to Jesus? What do you mean, he exclaimed? 
How can an old man, listen to this, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Think about that for a second. This guy was essentially the equivalent to what we have as a Supreme Court justice. Can you imagine someone of his stature, someone of his education, responding to a statement like this that Jesus makes with such a question, with such arrogance? How can an old man go back into a mother's womb and be born again? See, it's easier for him to dismiss. It's easier for him to misunderstand than it is for him to actually listen and engage and accept the response that Jesus provides him. You see, if he was to accept Jesus' words here, he would then be erasing an entire lifetime of both work and of study. He'd be throwing away everything that he held on to. He'd be bringing to question his entire way of life. The playing field in Jesus' response here has been leveled. Jesus came for absolutely everyone. To be reborn would mean that he would need to be made new by God rather than himself. It would mean that he wasn't in control. All the rituals, all the pomp and circumstance, if you will, all that out the window, this idea of grace is absolutely scandalous to Nicodemus. The idea of grace forces Nicodemus to look outside of himself rather than within. This idea of grace forces us to look outside of ourselves rather than within. It forces us to acknowledge that we are simply creation, not the creator. It forces us to our knees to understand that God is creator over our lives. Grace is an amazing thing, but it is so difficult, so difficult to understand. The text continues. We pick up in verse 5. It says, Jesus replied to Nicodemus now, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Before he said no one can even see it. Now he's saying no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You can almost hear Jesus getting frustrated as he's trying to explain to him here. You're not listening. You're not listening. He repeats himself a little bit before he continues. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you're all good, Nicodemus. You're a Jew. You're fine. No. He says, you must be born of both water and spirit. A double baptism, if you will. Baptism by water. It's an amazing thing. It's an outward sign of an inward change. And baptism of the spirit, which represents life change, true life change taking place in you. A renewing of both your mind and spirit. Simply being baptized by water isn't enough. You can come here and you can get baptized. We do it once or twice a year. We set up the pool in the front of the, the gathering here, in front of the stage. And you can get baptized. But that's just like having a birth certificate. What's important is that there's a renewing, a renewing of your, your mind and your spirit. That you're born again by the spirit. Is water baptism important? Yes, very much so. You have to do it. Jesus is saying, of water and of spirit. 
But one without the other is not enough. Even if you're renewed by the Spirit and you choose not to get baptized, you're disobeying God's command. He's saying you need to be renewed internally, but then you need to go and you need to proclaim to the world that you've been changed. You need to proclaim to the world that you've been changed. You need both. And then Jesus, from that point, I mean, this was shocking enough to Nicodemus. He continues on, and he says, he starts talking about the wind. He starts talking about the weather. At this point in history, the wind was very mysterious. And I'll be honest with you, it's still a little mysterious. You ever sit back and actually think about the wind for a moment? I was lying in my pool the other night, and I was watching the trees sway. And I just, I was in awe. Like, where does it come from? How does it get there? You know, what's interesting is if, actually if you look at the Greek and you look at the Hebrew, the word for wind is the same word for spirit. It's actually interpreted as breath, spirit, or wind. In Hebrew, it's roach. In Greek, it's called pneuma. We don't understand the wind. We can't control the wind, yet we can hear it. We can see how it affects everything around us. We see the swaying trees. We see the clouds move through the sky. In the fall, we see the leaves when we're raking. We make a nice, beautiful pile. And then all of a sudden, a big gust of wind comes, and God teaches you a lesson about patience or procrastination, one of the two. We could see the effects of the wind, right? The wind is powerful, and it seems to come and go as it pleases. You can't control it. And the same is true of the Spirit, God's Spirit. When the Spirit is at work, it is absolutely, positively undeniable. We cannot see it, but yet we can see the effects of it. You can't see God's Spirit, but you can very much tell where it's been. When God's Spirit is at work in us, our fear begins to dissipate. When God's Spirit is at work in us, our posture of worship increases. When God's Spirit is at work in us, we begin to experience life to the fullest, and we begin to experience life the way that God intended us to live it. We can't see the Spirit, but we can see the effects of the Spirit. We continue on in verse 9 in our text. How are these things possible? Nicodemus' response, he asks. And Jesus said to him, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Put him in his place. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I'm willing to bet that Nicodemus' response here is one of confusion, but also reluctance. I imagine that he so desperately wants to understand. Desperately. But at the same time, he's terrified of what might happen if he accepts what Jesus is saying. Jesus, on the other hand, I think is growing more and more frustrated. For years, Nicodemus had been teaching others about the conditions required to get into the kingdom of heaven, yet here Jesus presents this idea that he's never even considered, that it's not about what we do, but rather about what God does and what God ultimately has done for us. Again, the idea of grace is absolutely scandalous to Nicodemus, and he's having a difficult time accepting it. He's skeptical, he's reluctant, in the same way that we are when it comes to receiving grace from God. We think that there's got to be a catch. Happened just last week. Someone came in and said, hey, 
what's with the coffee and stuff? And I said, oh, just grab a cup of coffee. Well, where do I pay? It's free. What do you mean it's free? There's got to be a catch. There's no catch. I know that's a point of contention for some. What do you mean you don't take an offering? We just provide an opportunity for you to give. There's no catch. What do you mean the car wash is free? It's free. Soap, water, brush, dirt, we clean it. That's it. There's got to be a catch. We always think we're all skeptical. And Nicodemus is feeling the same way. But here's the thing. There isn't a catch. Jesus continues on. He says, no one has, this is what Jesus says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But listen to this. The son of man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Imagine, oh man, I wish I could have been in the room to watch this conversation take place, don't you? Jesus with Nicodemus, two religious leaders, very differing views. Imagine Nicodemus now on the edge of his seat. Jesus just claimed to be the son of man. Can you imagine what's running through Nicodemus's head here? He believed God had sent him, but the son of God? The Messiah, the bronze snake that Jesus is referring to here, goes all the way back to the book of Numbers when the Israelites were roaming through the wilderness and snakes had invaded their camp and God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it onto a staff. If he held it up high and whoever looked at that staff, they would be healed. There's this amazing thought. It's a symbol that we still see today, actually. It's one that is still present today. I think we have a picture of it. You see, you You familiar? It's on every, notice there was a jacket that Annie was wearing this morning. It's right on her sleeve. Paramedics wear it. It's on ambulances. It's everywhere. It's this idea. I mean, it, comes all, it goes all the way back to the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. Not only did Jesus claim to be the son of man, he also said that he's going to be lifted up the same way that Moses lifted the serpent, the bronze snake. When we, have the ben- we, we happen to have the benefit of knowing what's going to happen. Nicodemus, not so much. The disciples in the other room, not so much. Put yourself in his shoes and try to comprehend what's happening here. What do you think was running through his mind? A religious teacher, a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have been familiar with all the prophecies. He was familiar with the text. He was familiar with the imagery that Jesus was presenting here. I imagine he's starting to connect the dots in his mind. That's when his attitude of skepticism, his attitude of reluctance, started to shift. And he gained a posture of reverence and of awe. He was in the presence of the Messiah. And that right there is when Jesus, figuratively speaking, drops the mic with probably one of the most renowned passages of Scripture in all the Bible, one that many of us have memorized as kids. John chapter 3, verse 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. 
loved the world, the entire world. He came for everyone, not just for a select group. Jesus is driving this point home over and over and over again, and he continues, and we wrap up the passage with this. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than light. For their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. I love the imagery of darkness and light here. If we go back to the beginning of the text, we read that Nicodemus comes to meet with Jesus in the dark of night. The truth is, the reality is, we naturally want to run from light rather than towards it. Light exposes what we so desperately want to hide. What we ourselves want to hide from. And what Jesus is saying here is that I want to expose that in you, not so I can judge you, not so that I condemn you, but so that I can take it from you. You see, we, we run from it. We run from our drunk. We run from our messiness, our brokenness, rather than actually giving it to God. He's saying, let me take it from you. It's free. It doesn't cost you a thing. But yet we think there's got to be a catch. We learn a valuable lesson here from Nicodemus. Yeah, he went in the cover of the night, but he still went to meet with Jesus. Terrified. Terrified of what others might think terrified of what he himself may hear but at the end of the day he still met with him to hear him to learn from him to hear what he had to say and his message Jesus' message that message of grace forced him to look outside of himself rather than within forced him to look not at what he does but rather what God is doing and what God has done for him Jesus' message forces us to acknowledge that we are the creation, not the creator. We don't know much about Nicodemus after this point. The scripture only mentions him two other times. When he is a member of the Sanhedrin, is pleading with the other council members to allow Jesus to, to hear, to, to plead his case to them. And then after Jesus dies, Nicodemus goes with an absurd amount of incense and myrrh to, to embalm Jesus' body, enough for a royal burial. He goes and assists Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus, the Son of Man, was crucified on a cross, where he was hung up on a cross the same way that Moses held up the serpent. Surely, this conversation, this encounter, had an impression on Nicodemus. And surely, your encounter with Jesus will have an impression on you. But the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is this. Are you running towards him? Are you running towards the light so that he can take all that from you? Or are you running from him? There is no standing still. There is no stationary spot. You're either pursuing Christ or you're running away from him. And what's keeping you from pursuing him? Is it your brokenness? Is it your messiness? Is it your guilt? Is it your shame? Is it that secret sin in the dark of the night that you don't want anyone to see? 
Jesus is saying, come and bring it to me. Lay it at my feet. Let me put it on my shoulders. Let me take it with me to the cross so that you can have a relationship with me. So that you can have a relationship with my heavenly father. So this morning, I invite you, as we wrap up our service, as we close out in song, just take a moment and just lay it at his feet. Don't allow it, whatever it is, to prevent you from experiencing the life that Christ wants you to so desperately experience. Whatever it is, God's grace covers it. God's grace covers it. And God wants nothing more than to have a relationship with you. For you to follow his son Jesus, for you to fix your eyes on him, for you to trust him, to allow him to be creator, and for you to take comfort in being his perfect creation. So whatever it is that's keeping you, this morning I invite you to just lay it down. Just lay it down. Let's pray. Jesus.